Some of you are, shall we say, experienced enough to remember uh, the time during the 1930s of the Great Depression. Experienced, I say, because I did not have that experience. And so uh, some of you are old enough to remember what life was like back then. Very, very difficult times. All of us are old enough in here to remember the last few years of economic crisis in our world, which doesn't quite parallel those days of the Great Depression, but in our minds it probably comes as close to anything as we've ever seen. In the wake of that economic crisis that began a few years ago, it was interesting to note the string of suicides that took place right after that. Among people who were wealthy, who were important, and yet who had lost so much. The chief financial officer of Freddie Mac hanged himself in his basement. The CEO of Sheldon Good, which is a, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself while sitting in his red Jaguar. The French money manager who handled the investments of many of Europe's royal families, many of the leading families in Europe, he lost $1.4 billion in the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. He slit his wrists and he died in his office. A Bear Stearns executive took a drug overdose and jumped from the 29th floor of his office building. It's real similar, if you remember, the economic collapse in the 1930s began with a stock market crash in 29. It's very similar. It's interesting how those who seem to have it all, those who seem to be so important and well-connected, would feel as if all is lost, and the only solution is the taking of their own life. We look at that, it may seem a little bit distant, but in this room today are folks who have experienced those very emotions. Folks that we would never guess, folks who may be dressed in a nice set of clothes this morning, and you walked in and you shook hands because that's what you do when you walk into church, you shake hands and you smile, and people ask you if you're okay, and you say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. But this morning here, I guarantee you are folks who have experienced those emotions because those sets of emotions are not limited to Wall Street executives who have lost everything in an economic collapse. It permeates our society. It's everywhere. It's outside the church. It's inside the church. It's in people who follow Jesus closely and those who don't. These kinds of emotions are everywhere. We certainly have all at some point experienced just that. Wondering if there's any reason to go on. Maybe you haven't taken it as far as any attempt on your own life, but you've sat and you've wondered, what's the point? If I continue in this life, it's simply going to be more of what I've already experienced. Would it not be better to simply end it and not have to deal with that anymore? Or maybe you've asked, why in the world am I even here? I seem to serve no purpose in this world whatsoever. There's nothing that anybody expects from me. Because I can't give them anything anyway, why do I exist? Or maybe you've gone through something so difficult. Whatever it may be, some pain, some loss, some hurt, some tragedy. And you think to yourself, there is absolutely no way that I can get through this. There's no way that I can handle it. I want you to know that even those who walk with Jesus Christ experience those things. Some of you this morning may walk in feeling so lonely feeling as if you're the only one dealing with your junk and nobody else here at church because look at those people. Well, they're Christians. They must not deal with this. Even those who walk with Jesus can experience these things. 
We see evidence of that from the disciples in the New Testament. At the crucifixion, at the burial of Jesus, do you know what they did? They ran away. They denied that they even knew him. They assumed that all they had worked for for two and a half to three and a half years was over. That it's all done. Jesus is dead. They were confused as to what happened. They're in despair with no hope. And what do we do now must have been their question. You saw in the video at the beginning of the service a little bit of the perspective from the disciples. (laughs) He hasn't done anything wrong. Don't kill him. Now what? Now hope is gone. Even those who have walked with Jesus have experienced those moments where they feel as if there's no reason to take another step forward. Absolute despair. But why? Why would people who have walked so closely with Jesus experience those things and feel that way? When we look at the disciples, why would they go through such a difficult, difficult time when Jesus had already told them, they'll destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days? Why would they experience such hopelessness in the moment of Christ's death and burial when he had told them he would rise? I think it's partly due to the fact that they they didn't fully understand who Jesus was. Sure, they'd walked with him for two and a half or three and a half years, and they, they had gotten to know him personally, but they were still a little fuzzy on really who he was. And certainly they were fuzzy a little bit on what he came to do. We see in their mindset, uh, in a few instances here before the resurrection, some evidence of this. The the Apostle Peter, who is one of our favorite targets in the New Testament, if you have been in church ever before and heard a sermon on Peter, he gets picked on quite a bit because he was sort of irrational. And uh, he would would think, uh, you know, he would act before he thought. He would stick his foot in his mouth. He's just like us. You know, we, we like to get on him because it makes us feel a little better about ourselves. But he's just like us. Peter didn't fully understand who Jesus was or what he was about. In Matthew 16, there's an interaction between Jesus and Peter. and Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Messiah. You're from God himself. And Jesus says, you know what? You're absolutely right. And Jesus goes on to explain that what's going to happen to him is he will be attacked. He'll be beaten. He'll be killed. And Peter pulls him aside and he says, no, 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 no. Lord, let me tell you really how this is going to go. You're not going to have to experience any of that. Basically, Lord, I've got your back, and with me, you've got what you need right here. Peter didn't understand that the way to the kingdom Jesus was really establishing was through the cross. He expected something different. Later on, when Jesus predicts that that Peter will deny him, Peter, who who wants to be so loved and so approved and so appreciated and so needed, he says in the different accounts in the Gospels, even if I have to die, I'll never run away, Lord. Later he would say, even if everyone else runs away, I'm your man. I got your back. He would even say, I'm ready to go with you to prison or death. Those are great lines. I mean, those are, I mean, you just picture Mel Gibson in some, you know, get up from, from the dark ages, riding around on his horse and rallying the troops. I mean, that, that's what Peter's doing. Lord, I've got it. And then the denial itself comes. And Peter, this man who said, Lord, I've got your back, denies vehemently that he even knows Jesus because he's scared. 
scared to death of what's going to happen, confused over why is his Messiah being killed. When Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter wants to fight, draws his sword for a battle, thinking he can stop what God had already ordained. James and John, two other disciples, give evidence they didn't fully understand Jesus either because they come to him and they ask, Lord, uh, when, when your kingdom is established, we've got a little request we'd like to make of you. If it's, a, you know, if it's not too much trouble, um, we kind of like uh, you know, being in charge. We're good administrators. We're not, certainly not control freaks. You know? We just like to, to help things out. Can we sit at your right and your left, the most prominent positions? Would that be okay? That's what they ask him. Jesus responds to them, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Basically, do you have any idea what you're asking? Because if you want to sit on my right and my left, come on, but you're going to have to be crucified on my right and my left. And they say, oh, sure, absolutely. And yet they don't fully get it. All of the disciples, even right up to the time when Jesus would wash their feet and then be led away to crucifixion, you know what they're arguing about? Who is the greatest? They have a little competition. They want to know, well, you know, I, I, I'm pretty good at this. Well, you know, that. yeah, you might be, but, you know, you haven't seen me in action yet. They argue about who's the greatest back and forth, not fully understanding what's going on. It's as if the disciples are constantly wondering and thinking, and we see instances of this in the Gospels, asking Jesus, hey, uh, when is it you're going to rise to power? I mean, when, when is this, uh, when's the campaign going to begin? When do we draw our swords and conquer the Roman soldiers who have made our lives miserable? Lord, uh, is now the time? Can we go ahead and get this over with? We'd like to go ahead and establish the kingdom. When's the payoff, they wanted to know. They're devoted to Jesus. We can make it out to be a little cynical, but they were devoted to Jesus, and yet they were still focused on their preconceived notions of who Jesus was to be. Focused on an earthly kingdom they assumed that the Messiah had come to establish. They assumed that he would set up this kingdom and physically crush all of their opposition. And they assumed that they would have places of prominence in this newly established kingdom. New power when this kingdom happened. And no wonder if that's their thinking. If they're living for those earthly things... If they believe that Jesus is simply for an earthly kingdom, no wonder the confusion at the cross. No wonder the despair at the tomb. No wonder. If you get inside their head a little bit, begin to understand what they're thinking, no wonder they were confused and hurt and, and fearful. No wonder they assumed that it was over. But something was about to happen. In the midst of their despair, in the midst of their hopelessness, in the midst of their confusion, something was about to happen that would change their perspective, that would change their very belief system, that would change their convictions, and that would eventually change their actions forever. We see what that is in the book of Luke, chapter 24. Turn with me there if you have a Bible this morning. Luke, chapter 24. you're not familiar with the Bible, please don't let that stop you. Luke is over in the New Testament. If you have a Bible with a table of contents, you can look it up there, find what page number it is in your Bible, and turn there. Luke chapter 24. If you've got your Bible open and you're looking there, let's look at verse 1. The words should be behind me on the screen as I read them. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb. So this is after the crucifixion. 
bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood, stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living, or for the, for the living rather, among the dead? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he has been resurrected. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day? And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women were with them, telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloth, so he went home amazed at what had happened. This is the event that will change their perspective, that will change their belief system, will change their convictions, and will change their actions forever. These haunting words, I love this question that is asked by the angels in this particular rendition of the resurrection. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? The angel here sheds light on the fact they had misunderstood who Jesus was and what he was all about. Life was about to change big time for these disciples because Jesus was no longer dead, but he's alive. We see how it changes. Look in verse 36 of Luke 24. Jesus has appeared to some disciples, and as they were saying these things, it says, He Himself, Jesus, stood among them. He said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. You see the picture kind of becoming clearer for them. Wait a minute, what's going on? Something is happening. Why are you troubled? He asked them. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they still could not believe because of, their, because of their joy and were amazed, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Just more proof that he's real. Then he told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Talking there about his death and his burial. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what, was, what is written, the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple complex blessing God. You see the difference that's becoming apparent in these disciples? At the cross, at the tomb, they're confused. They're fearful. They're, they're wondering, is this the end? Is there any reason to go on? We've wasted now three years of our lives for something that's over. After worshiping him... They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. 
blessing God in the temple complex. They had seen the risen Savior. Begin to see a different picture of these disciples. No longer are they power hungry, earthly focused, fearful. They're becoming different. A couple of great passages of Scripture highlight even Peter and John. In the book of Acts, chapter 4, I love this. It just shows you the picture of what the resurrection had done to them when they believed what Jesus really, who he was and what he was about. Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, they had just healed a guy who couldn't walk, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, now stop there, this is the same guy that denied that he even knew Jesus, just, just a month or two before, not long. Let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by, his, by, by him this man is standing before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone despised by you builders who has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. What boldness. Realize these people that he's talking to could have done the same thing to him that they did to Jesus. A month or so ago, he runs away. He tries to fight, takes off, denies that he even knows Jesus, and now he says, guess what? <laughs> I'm a little bit different. Chapter 5 gives us a great picture as well. Verse 25, someone came and reported to them, talking about the religious leaders here who had gotten Peter and, and uh, John in trouble. Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple complex and teaching the people. Then the captain went to the temple police and brought them in without force because they were afraid that the people might stone them. When they had brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Isn't that great? And are determined to bring, about this, to bring this man's blood on us, as if it was not already. But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to, to his right hand as ruler and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of, this, of these things, and so it is the Holy Spirit whom God has given, and so is the Holy Spirit to whom God has given to those who obey him. They say we must obey God rather than men. You realize a month or so before this, they're all running away, scared of men. They're not worried about obeying God, they're worried about their lives. What happened? What happened? Jesus didn't stay dead. <laughs> That's what happened. They saw him raised from the dead. They were different. They're now filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, full of faith in Jesus as their risen Savior. He's alive and they know it. So they're no longer living for earthly things. They're now solely focused on the spiritual and eternal kingdom of God. Understand the difference in their mindset. At one point, focused downward now they're focused upward and so what's the challenge we can receive today from the example of these disciples before the resurrection and after the resurrection Jesus is alive which demanded a response from from the disciples and demands a response from us today I want to offer you two things this morning as points of application the first is to stop living for dying things Stop living for dying 
things. These disciples knew Jesus, walked with Him, but were so earthly focused that when He died and was buried, they could think of nothing else but what they had lost instead of what they're about to gain. I really believe that because of the resurrection, it's time for us to stop living for dying things. For the disciples, those dying things were the prospect of crushing the rule of the Romans, the idea of being important and powerful in this new earthly kingdom. For us, we don't fight the Romans anymore. None of us are likely to rise to prominence in any earthly kingdom. Maybe those aren't your temptations. Maybe those aren't the dying things that you're living for, but I guarantee you that the plans you've made for their life, for your life rather, when they get a little messed up, you find out how quickly you're living for those plans. The need for approval, to justify your own existence by performance, and receiving the applause and the appreciation of others, what a temptation that is. There are some who live for those things. They live for the approval of others. If someone would just tell me that I'm worth something, if someone would just care about me, if someone would just show me a little bit of appreciation, then I'd be okay. It's a dying thing. We search for meaning and significance. And we're on a lifelong quest, it seems, to find our meaning and our significance. Why are we here? We search in all sorts of places, mostly in dying things that will not last. It is a multi-billion dollar business to help people try to stay young forever. If you look around this room, I praise God for those who remind us that you can't stay young forever. You can't. Fight it all you want. Cover it up all you want. Do all that you can to try to stay young forever. And still, the percentages are in favor of your death. If you know what I mean. It's a pretty high percentage. But don't we seek it. At any cost, we'll do all we can to avoid the appearance of age. We also seek security. Now, security comes in a lot of different fashions. We seek security by making sure we've got enough money in the bank or we're going to climb that ladder and get to our peak position in the company, whatever it may be. But security, even in an earthly stance, is a dying thing. Maybe it's success for you. Maybe just so you can appear as if you've got it all together. Maybe you're that perfectionist person whose success is your God a dying thing maybe for you it's just money the stuff that you can have to impress or to feel good or whatever it may be maybe it's your pleasure you just want to have a good time and whatever that means for you it doesn't matter because I'm just I'm here for a good time maybe for others as I mentioned before I prayed for some the dying thing that you might be counting on is religion. I'm not saying Jesus Christ because there's a huge, huge difference. But you may be living for religion and you figure if I check off all the boxes that it seems as if everybody else is checking off, then I'm okay with God. Religion 
in its structures and in its buildings and in its programs is a dying thing. Religion will not take you into eternity. Only Jesus Christ himself can take you into eternity. Everything else is an add-on. The results of all those things, they promise happiness and peace and security. So we chase after them. But you know what we wind up with? We wind up realizing that no one and nothing this world has to offer can give you what your soul really needs. And if you're honest with yourself this morning, you may be chasing all those things. And if you're honest, gut level honest, peel back all the layers, and it's just you there, there's a great chance that you're an empty person this morning. There's a great chance that your life is full of disappointment, knowing that you never really measure up. Maybe you're disenchanted with life, and you're just existing, just checking the day off, next that one off the calendar and move on to the next. Maybe for you there's dissatisfaction with all that you do and all that you experience, even though you may be greatly successful in your field of business or work. Maybe you're tired. You're overworked. You're wearing yourself out. And you think, why am I doing this? This doesn't make a bit of sense, but I don't know any other pattern right now. Or maybe your life is wrecked by sin because you're pursuing all that this world has to offer. And you, at your core, you know, you know what, I'm making decisions that I'll pay for one day. If not tomorrow, <laughs> one day I'll pay for them. And you, as the angel says, are looking for the living among the dead. Looking for what true life is among things that are dying. Some here today are going through that. You've based your entire life on things that will not last, dying things, and now you're confused. Now you're hopeless. Now you're angry, and you're still searching. What's the remedy? What's the answer to all of that? Well, I'll tell you this. It's not, it's not a shuffling of the chairs on the deck of a sinking ship. <laughs> it's not just, well, let me rearrange this just a little bit, and then I'll be okay. It's not a surface issue goes to the core you need to start living for eternal things start living for eternal things if you're a believer in Jesus because Jesus is alive you are no longer bound to live for earthly and dying things you don't have to you don't have to you've been set free from that if you're in the trap this morning you know Jesus and yet your life is still bound up in that Claim His freedom that He has given you by His death and resurrection over all of that stuff. You don't have to live for those dying things anymore. Instead, you're called and enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to live for eternal things. Things which ultimately bring us the fulfillment and joy that only Jesus can offer. Jesus summed it up in a passage of Scripture that's one of my favorites. In Matthew chapter 6, He sort of gets right to the point, and then he tells us, instead of all of these earthly and dying things, here's what you should live for. He says in verse 25, Matthew 6, This is why I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more important than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth 
more than they? Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? You have little faith. So don't worry. Saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Those are all the dying things, he says. All the dying things that we pursue. All the categories are represented there. All the stuff that we've got to have. All the things that we count on so much. Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows you need all that stuff. So you don't have to pursue. You don't have to live for dying things. What does he say? But seek first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be provided for you. The eternal things that we are called to seek. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Anxiety. Striving to get ahead are conquered by faith in a living Savior. He says, oh, you of little faith. <laughs> he's talking to me and he's talking to you. The pursuit of dying things is overcome by a new pursuit, a new desire for the growth of God's spiritual kingdom. Seeing lost souls come to Christ and for a desire for personal righteousness. Those are the eternal things that we must set our minds, our hearts, and our pocketbooks and everything we are on those things. Let me give you a little game plan for this week. Maybe, and these aren't on your bulletin, but maybe you'd like to write them down. They all begin with R, so they'll be easy to remember. I want you to spend a little time with this this week. Spend a little time for recognition. Not your own recognition. That's easy but recognition of the dying things that you are living for. It's easy this morning to come and hear a sermon and came on Easter and you heard about the resurrection and yeah, it's the same thing every year. I mean, which naturally it is. <laughs> what else are you going to talk about on Easter? But if it ends there, it's pointless for you. So spend some time this week to recognize the dying things that you're living for. How do you do that? Well, think about what you daydream about. Where you daydream about being. Or what you imagine yourself doing one day. You, you'll get an idea. Or consider what you spend your money on. Maybe this week would be the, the week to balance the checkbook. Maybe you haven't done that in a while. I don't know. Maybe you do it every day. But take a look at what you spend your money on. You'll get an idea to some degree, of what you're living for. I want you to think hard about what, what masters you, what controls you during the week. Recognize those things. Are you truly controlled by the Holy Spirit, or are you living for all the dying things that this world has to offer? Evaluate the emotions in your life that are uncontrollable. You'll get an idea as to what they're tied to, which you'll see some of the dying things that you might be living for. If you're really brave, ask your spouse or your children about the dying things they see you're living for. And then just brace yourself, because they're going to be honest, because they see it. I think in all of that, you'll get an idea of recognizing the dying things that you are living for. Also, take time for repentance. 
Take time to repent. Maybe it's coming to Jesus for the very first time for salvation, for forgiveness, for restoration. Those things, by the way, coming to Him for salvation, for forgiveness, for restoration, those things are not based upon our strength. And I'm going to do it this week. You know what it's based on? An admission of weakness and need. I cannot do this for myself. Therefore, Jesus, I need you. That's the essence of Christianity. Christianity is not about what you can do. It's about what Jesus has done. Take time for repentance. To call out those dying things that you've been living for. To tell the Lord about them. He already knows, but confess them to Him. To ask for forgiveness and one by one turn away from them. I spent some time this week, by the way, just in case you're wondering if I interact with the sermon other than the hour we spend together on Sunday mornings. I spent some time this week literally on my face in my office before the Lord confessing the dying things that I'm living for. I don't say that because you need to be impressed with what I do during the week in prayer. I say that because if we don't take the time to call them out one by one, they are so subtle. And we'll simply drift from week to week and we will never, ever experience what God has called us to through that repentance. Take time for repentance and then take time to replace the dying things with eternal things. I said to you earlier, they can't be, they can't be remedied by just shuffling the chairs on the deck of a sinking ship. They have to be replaced. They have to be dethroned in your life and Jesus enthroned. So once you've recognized them, once you've confessed and repented of them, it's time to replace them with eternal things. I want you to think about one thing you can do this week that, is, that has an eternal focus that would replace something that has a dying focus. What can you replace this week? Something that's dying, replace it with something that's eternal. I don't know what it might be. Maybe for some who work quite a bit, it may be saying, you know what, I'm not going to work as much as I did this last week, because I'm going home to spend an hour talking with my spouse or just being with my children or going to visit that person or whatever it may be in your life that you can say, here's one eternal thing that I will use to replace a dying thing and also take time to rejoice this week. Take time to rejoice. Praise God this week for what He did on the cross through Jesus Christ. Praise God that Jesus is alive. Praise Him for helping you see the dying things, not leaving you there, but helping you see those dying things you're living for. The more time you spend in worship of the Savior, the less time and energy you'll spend living for dying things. And then take time to refuel. Rejoice and then refuel. When Jesus left for heaven, He sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of believers to empower them daily, every minute of every day for living, and to encourage them along the way. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus through faith in His death and His resurrection, and you have the same Holy Spirit that was sent to the apostles in Acts chapter 2, the same one, and no matter how long, let me tell you, if you're a young person, when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you did not get a junior Holy Spirit that you grow into at some point. You didn't get that. You have the full Holy Spirit, the full empowerment and encouragement of the Holy Spirit to live as a believer in Jesus Christ every single minute of every single day. So refuel by the power of the Holy Spirit, asking Him to fill you with hope 
Not hope of a better tomorrow just because, but hope because of the empty tomb. Ask Him to fill you with confidence in Jesus Christ. Ask Him to fill you with the joy that only comes from the Lord. And ask Him to fill you with an eternal perspective. We're going to close this morning with a song. And, and maybe there are a couple of things that, that you might need to do as we close. One might be that you just need to sing this song because He lives as the cry of your heart. Just the confession that praise God He lives. And you belt it out. I don't care if you can sing or not. I can't sing a lick. That's why I turn my microphone off when I'm not, you know, when I'm not talking. Some of you wish I'd turn it off a little sooner, but I get that. That's all right. But just belt it out as your heart's cry of praise to the Lord. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Not because I've reshuffled the deck, but because He lives. Or maybe you're not there yet to singing that song. And you just stand and you'd receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the song. You'd let it minister to your heart. Or maybe you would like to come and simply pour your heart out to God about the dying things that you're living for. Maybe to receive Jesus for the very first time through faith in Him, receive His salvation. I'll be standing down front in just a moment. You're certainly welcome to come pray with me or to kneel here and pour your heart out to God as we sing together. But sing from your heart or let it minister to your heart or pour out your heart to God as we close. Let's pray together. God, help us to imagine what life would be like if we lived for eternal things. Help us to see what your vision for our lives is. That would mean no longer living for dying things, but because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can now live for eternal things. Give us a picture in our minds today, Lord, of what that would look like. We pray, Lord, that you would empower us as we leave take the necessary steps to replace the dying things with eternal things so that our homes and our marriages and our lives and our communities and our church will be different. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that's found in your word. And we don't have to look for the living among the dead because he is not here. He is alive, no longer in the tomb. Father, we thank you for raising the Son from death into life and for granting us salvation through it. We pray in Jesus' name.